Hi, this is uh, the Hagley History Hangout, um, our occasional series, uh, actually regular series, of talks with people who have made use of Hagley's research collections and have done interesting things with them. Uh, today, I'm here with Amy Offner, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, we're talking with her about her uh, most recent book, Sorting Out the Mixed Economy, The Rise and Fall of Welfare and Developmental States in the Americas, which came out last year from Princeton. Uh, it's won a first monograph prize from the Economic History Society and just won the Michael H. Hunt Prize for International History from Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. Um, this book moves back and forth between Columbia and the US since World War II to show the interrelationships that generated the kind of state and economy that exists today in both nations. So Amy, welcome and thank you for coming to talk with us. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's great to see you. Well, I want to start uh, by asking you to elaborate on the two main themes that you develop in the book. And these are themes that you say are the two main themes. They aren't my, but yours. Uh, but I want you to explain them to people who are, who are listening and haven't read the book. Um, so the first one to add to respond to is you argue that what is commonly called neoliberalism today, which maybe you can define, um, is not so neo as both the advocates and the critics of it like to claim. Can you elaborate on that? Maybe tell us what neoliberalism is in less than 24 minutes um, in the process. Yeah, I mean, people define neoliberalism in a lot of different ways, actually. And I actually don't attempt to offer a definition of it in the book. But what I do is I look at a number of practices that today are generally regarded as quintessential features of neoliberalism. So I look at practices like austere systems of social welfare provision, forms of state decentralization, forms of um, for-profit delegation of state functions. And I try and kind of look at the really long entangled lineages of those practices, which I argue go back into the welfare and developmental states that were constructed in the US and Latin America in the mid 20th century. And so in that sense, the um, you know most of the literature on neoliberalism, whatever definition it offers, it suggests that the 1970s and 80s are a time of, of incredible rupture, a time when sort of the world gets turned upside down and all of the kind of ideas and practices that characterized Keynesianism or developmentalism sort of get thrown out the window and get displaced by a, a radically new set of ideas. And part of what I'm trying to suggest is that actually the um, political economic order that we call neoliberal today is very much a parasitic formation that was created in part by appropriating and redeploying and politically resignifying practices that were actually quite old that have built many different political economic orders. Um, we'll come back. May, I may I'll ask you this now. I'm going to come back to it later, but maybe I'll just to stay on this point. Why have so many authors presented this as a rupture? I mean, you're, you're I mean, I mean, let me say this, that often we classify history books into some books are about continuity and some books are about change. And you want to say that within this change, there was continuity. Um, but why have other people, so many people for so long, stressed the rupture part of the story? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that in part it's because there were some significant ruptures and I definitely don't mean to argue that the world at the end of the 20th century was um, just like what had come before. And um, I think there are, for instance, really outstanding books in labor history that demonstrate some really important kind of attacks on working class um, organization and real transformations in class power that do take place across the late 20th century. Um, I think that, you know, the um, 
there are some kind of significant shifts that take place. But there's also a lot of triumphalist storytelling that happens among some intellectual communities on the right. You know, so we think about the Mont Pelerin Society, um, we think about the, um, the Chicago School. They, in the um, uh, late 20th century, are incredible kind of popularizers of history and they tell versions of history in which they are the starring characters and the story goes that they single-handedly kind of remade the world that they um, had projects that they had been pursuing for many decades and in these moments of crisis in the 1970s 80s and 90s they managed to sort of um, popularize and institutionalize ideas that had little to no precedent and i think that that storytelling that actually originates on the right has had a really profound effect on every one's understanding of history. And so people who were facing actually some very new circumstances tended to explain that fact by essentially um, accepting the story that the right told about itself. And um, one of the things that I'm trying to suggest is that actually those were self-aggrandizing tales. And what the right doesn't often acknowledge is its own debt actually to the very order that it destroyed. Very good. Um... That's a very nice piece of the book there. And of course, when you say that, you know, we know these folks were popularizers. We know they were there. So it hopefully it'll make us rethink about that. So that's one, I think, main theme um, in the book there. Uh, the other theme is you argue that isolating developments in the United States, with inside the borders of the United States, misses the crucial relationships with other nations. Uh, and so there's an argument, really a big argument here about transnational history, about the way that we do history. Um, and so, but by not researching those relationships, we miss something important analytically. What we think was our domestic process actually occurred on an international plane. Could you, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the rise and fall of the U.S. welfare state is part of, you know, much wider world processes where, you know, between the Great Depression and the 1970s, more or less, you know, simultaneously all over the world, you have the um, construction and expansion of welfare states and also of developmental states in what at the time was was thought of as the third world and they really rise and fall simultaneously and so i wanted to think about how um, that aspect of u.s history could be understood um, as um, connected to uh, the processes that were taking beyond taking place beyond u.s borders and um one of the things that i did is i tried to tell that story outside of the frame of the north atlantic most um, histories of the U.S. welfare state that have taken an international approach have been comparative or sometimes relational and transnational stories about the U.S. and Western Europe uh, principally. And I was really influenced by the writing of Latin American historians um, who have tried to think about the United States as an American society, that is to say, as part of the Americas. And this is a sort of perspective that says, look, you know, the United States and uh, today's Latin American countries are products of actually the same historical processes from European colonization, contact and conflict with indigenous peoples, the transatlantic slave trade, the age of revolutions, and then all of the many conflicts that come out of um, independence. And so I decided to try and look at the um, conjoined process of state formation in the United States and in Colombia, which there's no typical or representative Latin American country. But to my surprise, I found that Colombia was a country that was very richly connected to uh, the United States, 
to the Bretton Woods institutions. And at mid-century, uh, many development theorists and development institutions thought that Columbia was a model of capitalist development. And so I follow the traffic of people and ideas and funding um, and corporations uh, and volunteers that move back and forth between these two countries in order to try and understand how um, we can understand the, the process of state formation and capitalist transformation in these countries as connected and proceeding together historically in time. Um, let me step back, push you back a second. You use the term developmental state, yeah. which is not, I mean, we, we sort of understand what a welfare state is, but I'm not sure people understand without reading your book, which I haven't done yet, uh, what a developmental state is. So, so what do you mean by these developmental states that you're looking at in Latin America? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, in uh, Latin America and in much of what uh, you know, the mid 20th century was called the third world, um, the Great Depression and then the um, World War II and the process of decolonization gave rise to um, conceptions that one of the central functions of um, government was to remake national economies in the interest of national development, which itself was a kind of a term that was being defined um, and being redefined at this time. And one of the central ideas behind um, developmentalism in the third world was that actually um, uh, systems of international trade and investment had um, condemned uh, either uh, colonial um, societies or post-colonial societies to poverty. And that essentially what they had to do was change their position in world trade and develop new productive sectors. So there were drives to industrialize, there were drives to um, increase the productivity of agriculture and to transform the, the products that were being uh, produced. So in a sense, um, the developmental state bears a little bit of similarity to the welfare state in that this is an attempt to eradicate the problem of poverty, but poverty is being understood first and foremost as the condition of being a poor country due to your position in international trade and, and, um, uh, and investment relations. And in that sense, the kinds of activities that the state undertakes are different from the ones that you find in a welfare state where, you know, in the United States, there was sort of this understanding by the 1950s that the United States was not a poor country, but it had isolated pockets of poverty within it. And so the welfare state was about eradicating pockets of poverty and guarding against insecurity in a country where I think falsely, um, most government officials and many intellectuals thought there was basically nothing wrong with the macroeconomic order. So these are two different kinds of states. They have kind of some somewhat different um, legitimating functions, but both of them are very concerned with the role of the state in eradicating poverty, understood either as the poverty of the nation or poverty within the nation. Now, when you chart this process, um, you have a very nice device, which I want to ask you about, of David Leilenthal, uh, for New Dealer, who, who seems to be uh, following um, you know, the Hobbit subtitle, uh, There and Back Again as he moves from the US to Colombia and around and he gets all over the place. Um, and you obviously have a stash of his stuff that's fabulous to, to, to follow um, in the book there. I think it's a very nice feature of it. Um, but why do you have Leelenthal as such a central character? And what I want to push you about is that was he indeed such a central character in the actual production of these states? Uh, is it simply a device uh, what role, I mean, he's in the book in a big way, so, so explain to us the role that you insert him in as you present this, this narrative. Yeah, no, I think the way you put it is good. Lillian Thal for me was a good narrative device because he's so prolific. He's 
everywhere all the time. Um, he kind of has his hands in a lot of different projects. And he, you know, Lillian Ball is a propagandist. He's a, um, a very self-interested propagandist. Um, and for that reason, he is um, often kind of articulating the ideas of people around him. He's articulating actually um, some really important transformations that I see taking place. I don't think that David Lilienthal himself caused almost anything to happen, he, um, but he's a really incredible guide to um, a lot of the transformations that I was trying to chart. And so I did um, use him and I use a few other um, figures who likewise just left an incredible incredible archive of material. Um, I use them as, as sort of as narrative devices. Lilienthal to me exemplifies one of the um, uh, processes I'm trying to look at in the book, which is the kind of um, the mobilization of businessmen in both the United States and Colombia to shape the welfare and developmental states and to extract profits um, from them. And that's an aspect of the history of the welfare state and the developmental state that's often, I think, been a little bit understated. People sometimes retrospectively have this idea that, well, back in the mid 20th century, states really did a lot and the public sector was on the rise. And then, you know, capital uh, takes on those functions after the 1970s. And part of what I try to tell through Lilienthal's kind of peregrinations is a story about the ways in which private capital was constantly inserted into projects of state formation and the way that it extracted actually a lot from the expansion of the state. Well, let me ask you to put a mirror to Lilienthal. I'm having trouble with his name. Uh, and tell us your, the, there's a number of Latin Americans you follow, Colombians, uh, which is, I think is in part a way to balance uh, this relatively famous figure for U.S. historians. Um, who is sort of your, your, his doppelganger? in uh, Colombia, you know, who's, uh, who, in, who you trace, who you use in a, in a, in a it's almost an equivalent kind of way. Well, I guess there's a few Colombians who Lilienthal is very much um, intersecting with. I mean, in his own life, the two Colombians he's intersecting with are Bernardo Garces Cordova, who's a notable Colombian capitalist and the first executive director of Colombia's first regional development corporation. And then there's another Colombian businessman named uh, Reynaldo Scarpeta, who um, is very involved in the creation of the first MBA program in Colombia. But in the book, actually, the person who is most his doppelganger, kind of a foil to him, is somebody who, um, as far as I know he probably never met actually. And it's an economist named Eduardo Wiesner, who in the um, 1980s became the Western Hemisphere director of the International Monetary Fund and was very much involved then in um, negotiating structural adjustment agreements in Latin America. And in the 1990s, he becomes a consultant to the World Bank, um, advising on the process of state decentralization. So Wiesner is a figure that we very much associate with um, the implementation of neoliberal economic policy in Latin America. And what I do in the book is, you know, these two figures who actually in their own careers never, as far as I know, met. Um, I look at both of them from the perspective of the Cauca Valley in Colombia, and I show how both of their ideas were very much formed through um, their engagement with transformations of the wealth of the developmental state in the Cauca Valley, and how you can see the ideas that Wiesner developed actually growing out of the kinds of activities and ideas that Lilienthal had promoted in that context decades earlier. So what you have is one case, the US New Dealer going down to Colombia and then back, and then you have the, the Colombian moving from a Colombian policy to a hemispheric policy to a world policy, uh, yeah. adopting adopting these these ideas. Um, yeah. and I think 
Uh, and when we do this kind of transnational history, following the movement of people is also how you could follow the movement of ideas. Absolutely. And these are two figures who, you know, just as you say, um, were really central to the construction of welfare and developmental states. Um, Lilienthal being a really famous face of the New Deal and Wiesner before he goes to the IMF um, being, you know, very much entangled with the growth of, of Colombia's developmental state. And so both of them seem to present, you know, conundra in that by the end of their careers, they are involved in what we think of as um, activities of reaction. And what I try to show is that actually they developed their ideas from their experience within uh, welfare and developmental states. And that both of them, as you note, show how ideas that um, in, were very much um, cultivated by Colombian experience come northward. Lilienthal into the, um, the Great Society and Wiesner into the Bretton Woods institutions in Washington. Well, what is it about Colombia that makes it such a fertile you know, place you know, for these ideas? Um, I mean, this is, this is not a usual trip for a book, if we say to pick out what usually the, the, if this is done, which is not done very often, Latin America sort of functions as this unit. You know, usually a, an individual country isn't picked out. Why Colombia? That's a great question. I mean, and I think um, to the extent that individual countries have been picked out, you're more likely to hear about other ones. So the story of the Chicago boys in Chile is very well known and deservedly so. Um, Colombia is not a place in general where people have gone to study the sorts of questions that I'm um, studying. Colombia today um, is the least studied of the large states in Latin America. And people think that, you know, if you want to study Colombia, it's because you want to study drugs or security policy or political violence. But um, part of what I'm, um, what I discovered was that, you know, Colombia in the mid 20th century was a place that was considered a model of capitalist development by the World Bank, by the US government, by um, a lot of um, uh, uh, economic, uh, econo uh, development economists at the time. And um, in part, this is because Colombians themselves had a really long history of doing politics by enlisting foreign advisors. This is a form of political contestation that you find not only in Colombia, but in many Latin American countries where essentially when there's a, a conflict taking place over what the course of, of national policy will be, one way that you can get an edge is by calling in a foreign advisor who you know will back up your position and, and sort of lend credence to it. And Colombia um, has a very long history of having enlisted foreign advisors and foreign aid in exactly that way, going all the way back to the Kemmerer missions of the early 20th century, which helped create the, the um, Bank of the Republic in Colombia through, you know, in the 1940s, Colombia becomes the site of the first um, comprehensive country survey done by the World Bank because Colombians invited the World Bank in. David Lilienthal goes to Colombia because a group of capitalists in the city of Cali are in a big fight and they want somebody to back up their proposals. And so they call uh, David Lilienthal down. So I um, focused on Colombia because so many um, US institutions and international institutions had really special relationships there. Um, you can find, you know, not just Lilienthal, but Albert Kirschman really begins his career in development economics as an advisor in Colombia. Um, Lachlan Curry, who was a famous New Deal economist, spends really the second half of his life in Colombia, takes on Colombian citizenship and becomes a major um, economic advisor there. Colombia was the um, 
received the largest level of uh, World Bank loans per capita of any country in the world from 1950 until the middle of the 1970s. So that's why Colombia stood out to me. And I also decided to focus on one country because actually Latin America is a huge and diverse region. And when I started this research, I was, um, I was uh, a graduate student was being trained only in US history and was making my way into Latin American history. And I guess I took seriously the idea that um, uh, there was a lot to know. And most Latin Americanists begin their careers actually as specialists in the history of one country because national contexts really do matter um, even when you're doing transnational history. So I decided that sinking into one country was going to um, give me the best chance of telling a truthful story. Now, this kind of transnational history is a, is a research challenge. Um, how did you do it? How did you manage if especially you mentioned before that you go to Columbia as study US history and you do something a little different? Um, what did you have to do to get there? That's a great question. Um, I think that, you know, I was able to do this research because I received a lot of support and I think that people um, who are you know, doing this kind of research, or I guess I should say institutions, you know, graduate programs and um, funders, um, you know, really do have a responsibility to try and help people who are attempting to do what the profession is telling us we should do is, you know, strike out in, in new directions. So I was very lucky that Latin American historians and, and both, you know, Colombianists in the sense of, you know, US historians who study Colombia, but also Colombian um, scholars were extremely welcoming to me. I lived in Colombia for a year and a half and I had the opportunity to, you know, attend um, seminars and, and I was invited to present at various seminars. Seminars. I, you know, obviously was doing archival research um, in many different Colombian archives, and um, that depended on having funding, and it depended on having really the sort of generous engagement and welcoming of a lot of um, Latin Americanists and Latin Americans themselves, who I tried to, you know, cite and, and give credit to in, in this book. I learned so much from from those experiences. Um, and to some extent, you know, I think also the story is just um, probably a story that isn't entirely different from somebody who's doing research anywhere, which is that there's a lot of dumb luck and there's a lot of coincidence that leads you into interesting uh, paths. You know, there were archives that I ended up working in that I didn't really know at the time were not as widely used as it as it turns out they were and I was just too stupid to know not to go and ask. <laughs> um, so, you know, some combination of, of incredible support and dumb luck. <laughs> well, I mean, you also made a stop in at Hagley uh, in the course of this. Tell us what you used here. Yeah, Hagley was an amazing place to do research. It's very rare to get um, access to corporate archives really in any way. And so Hagley is one of the few places where you can go and really just find just, you know, more material really than you could ever than you could ever get through. Um, two collections that were really important for me at, at Hagley were um, first the National Association of Manufacturers, which had really amazing material, both on the mobilization of US businessmen to shape foreign aid in Latin America, and also the mobilization of businessmen to shape the war on poverty. And that was actually, the there's a, there's a couple of chapters in the book about um, the war on poverty and the great society and the way that um, businessmen insinuate themselves into it. And that owed a lot to what I found in the, the National Association of Manufacturers records. Um, 
The other really great collection that made a huge difference to me was um, the Philip D. Reed papers. And Philip D. Reed was a, an executive at General Electric. And one of the things that I discovered in doing this research is that, you know, very often there are business organizations that you, they, they're, there isn't an archived collection for them anywhere. But if you can find an individual businessman who kept all of the minutes of the meetings and had a secretary who filed them all away and then put their papers somewhere, the individual papers are often where you find a lot of organizational records. That's why Lilienthal is in the book as well. Lilienthal just, you know, he kept the minutes of like a gazillion organizations. He kept all the correspondence. And so Philip D. Reed is another figure like this. And in particular, he had kept a lot of material from a group called the International Executive Service Corps, which was a group that was put together um, by U.S. businessmen in the 1960s in order to basically send management consultants um, abroad. And I um, ended up writing quite a bit about them. And it would have been completely impossible without the personal papers of, of this GE executive. Great. Anyway, and we're open for research, and despite COVID, and we have research grants for that. That's my ad. That's your your ad for the sponsor for the moment, Eric. But let me go back to the war on poverty uh, and move us into there. Uh, one of the I think really remarkable things you do in that's those sections is you show the influence of Indian nations and Puerto Rico uh, in the development of this policy, and uh, I have not seen that before in any of the works on the welfare state in the United States, thinking about these nations, really, if we think about Puerto Rico really as a nation, that's part of the US, and these Indian nations, well, they are nations, you know, they are recognized as such, influencing uh, the US. So, so tell, tell us how you, how you worked that into the story and, and where that kind of hit you, where you found that. Yeah, that was a surprise to me. Um, I, um, you know, I basically look, there's one chapter that deals with the rise of um, for-profit training and education in the United States, which we tend to think of as a, um, you know, for-profit educational contract. And we think of that as something that started yesterday, but I try to show that actually it began um, with the construction of the welfare state and, and particularly in the era of the war on poverty, which is was a surprise to me. Um, and I showed that in that case, actually the first experiments in the federal government delegating training to for-profit corporations as a for-profit activity took place in Indian country actually in the 1950s. Um, and then that Indian country became important as a model in um, uh, sort of transferring that idea into um, the welfare state more, more generally um, during the era of the war on poverty. And this is the one of the sort of paths by which you get eventually by the late 1960s the development of for-profit educational contracting in the United States. And in um, another chapter, I look at um, the rise of self-help housing, which is uh, a very austere system of social welfare provision in which the in which governments promise to house people by giving them mortgage loans and materials and plans and supervision, and then deputizing them to go out and build their own houses. And this is a um, policy also that I show um, you know, is a US foreign aid policy um, that then sort of comes to the mainland with Indian country as a, the first place really that it that it takes off. Um, and Puerto Rico likewise plays this kind of gateway role between the third world and the, the US mainland. Um, and I came to that um, basically by looking at the United States from the outside in. So for instance, um, I was researching um, self-help housing in Colombia and um, I knew from some scattered references, actually, that um, that 
uh, self-help housing had been adapted actually on Indian reservations. I, I, I found that in a, a, like a dissertation, I think, um, an unpublished dissertation when I was doing that research on Columbia. So I went into the Bureau of Indian Affairs papers, which it turns out, you know, anybody who's worked there before will know this, but they're so um, underused. Uh, there were, you know, many, many boxes of materials that I opened through Freedom of Information Act requests that had never even been screened before. I was looking for material on housing. And what I found there was not only a story about housing, but I found that a lot of housing requests were related to job training programs that were opening up on, uh, uh, for, for Native Americans. And that led me into the material actually on training and education, and it led me into lots of new directions. And so, um, you know, I, I really actually never expected to be writing about Native American history, but um, I, was, I was, I guess, led there by the material I was finding in Colombia. And likewise, the um, aspects of Puerto Rican history there, there actually had been some interesting writing on self-help housing in Puerto Rico. That was something I was able to glean from secondary literature, but the connections to the U.S. mainland were much less um, evident, um, and the circuits that I that I ended up tracing out took me a while to put together. One of the uh, really strong features of that chapter about the self-help housing, this is throughout the, the book, but this is really apparent there, is the first sort of complex causal nexus of how this takes place, because go back to your opening point about neoliberalism, you're, you're moving away from seeing this as something which is imposed by an assault by the Chicago boys, Mount Pellerin and, and J. Howard Pugh and his, his crowd. Uh, and one thing you show here is the extent to which popular aspirations for social welfare policies, which we would also usually associate with the left, um, play a role in these, what becomes labeled as neoliberal. Um, can you spell that a bit for the self-help self housing, how that, how that dynamic works itself out? Yeah, self-help housing was really carried to the U.S. mainland by people who were in a position of dissent, actually, and who were really struggling to expand um, federal subsidies to poor people themselves, including um, members of Native American nations, as well as farm workers in the United States. These were groups that had really been shut out of New Deal housing uh, programs. And so one of the projects of uh, farm worker advocates and also of, of Native American tribal leaders was to sort of try and direct federal housing funds to these groups that had really um, almost no access to um, mortgage loans and other, other housing programs, including conventional public housing. And um, so there's a really sort of, um, uh, so there's an ambiguous and contradictory quality to the the what's happening in the 1960s, where on the one hand, these groups are promoting um, self-help housing as a way to channel federal funds to these communities. And in that sense, they are unquestionably expanding the reach of the welfare state. And in some ways, they're making it, um, they're opening up kind of progressive possibilities in a context where, for instance, you know, I look in California, where self-help housing was a way of, of bypassing the power of local housing authorities that were run by growers that were you know systematically um, using housing policy to marginalize and exploit um, farm workers and so the idea of self-help housing was to create a direct you know government mortgage loan between the federal government and the farm worker and in that sense displace the power of growers but on the other hand it's also creating a form of um, housing provision that recedes from the model of public housing in that it 
um, offers much smaller subsidies to poor people than public housing did. And it also sidelines the idea of public construction and ownership as a foundation of shared economic security and idealizes you know, individual home ownership instead as the, the foundation of, of well-being. And those aspects of, um, of self-help housing prove very congenial to the right wing. Those are things that can be celebrated by people who want to do away with public housing for um, uh, right-wing uh, reasons. And so this is a deeply ambiguous program. Many of its advocates think that what it really is is a wedge to open up the welfare state. They believe actually in the um, creation of many more kind of forms of public housing in the United States. And they think that this is sort of part of a, a social democratic program for the United States. But the reason that it's able to survive after the 1970s and 1980s is that actually those social democratic aspirations become kind of shorn from it and it becomes picked up and mobilized much more as a neoliberal instrument that symbolizes the evisceration of the mid-century welfare state. Well, there's an echo in what you just said, and indeed throughout the book, um, of a very sort of older historiography, which we would call the sort of the new left critique of progressivism in the field. We're thinking about, you know, Gabriel Coco and James Weinstein, late 60s. And just to summarize for people who haven't read this material, it basically said that the progressive era created these institutions to ameliorate bad things in the economy. And when they did so, they did it to create undemocratic ways of controlling problems. And it ha had a function, an anti-democratic nature where popular pressure was, was diffused into a, boards and agencies that were distant from electoral control and popular control. So just a, a, a word there. And so there's an element in yours which picks up on this, where, you know, where the, these, the story you tell of this popular aspirations for housing it gets channeled into these places where the individuals have very little power. It may start from them, but in the end, it ends up going into halls of power where they're far, far from the outside. So do you, th I mean, I'm, I'm kind of seeing this, but it's not something that you address in this book. Um, would, you, would you say there's an element there or am I just missing? And if I'm missing something, you just please tell me. No, you're absolutely right that I think I, I have to say, I wish that I had sort of addressed that more explicitly in the book. And I've kind of, I've just been waiting for somebody to ask me this question, to be honest. I keep waiting, all, I, to be honest, I keep waiting for the hostile question, like, isn't your book just the warmed over corporate liberalism thesis? <laughs> Um, and I do think that there's actually a really strong kind of debt to that literature in, in my book. Um, I think that there might be more ambiguity actually in my story than, than that in the sense that when I look at some of um, these um, projects, you know, um, I don't say this in a in a rosy sense, and I don't think anyone who reads my book comes away <laughs> with a, a sense that I, I have great you know personal sympathy for these. But for instance, some of the projects that I look at in Colombia that are really driven by capitalists in the 1950s were democratic innovations of their time. They were not in their moment um, conceptualized as anti-democratic, but what democracy meant in that moment was. Um, you know, by the lights of, of critics in the um, 80s and 90s was anti-democratic rot. And so in that sense, I think that, you know, democracy itself has to be kind of conceptualized historically. And I also think that even um, by the um, 80s and 90s, when you see self-help housing being um, very much kind of um, re-signified as a symbol of kind of self-reliance and just the opportunity for everybody to get um, opportunities in the market. Um, even then, it's absolutely true that the people who are participating in self-help housing programs 
um, have very little control over the really consequential decisions about financing and eligibility. And, and the possibilities are so constrained by that fact. But the fact of the matter is that there still are attempts at kind of democratic mobilization that do still take place within these organizations that I think, you know, shouldn't be um, discounted because that that can be very meaningful to people and it can have unseen political possibilities for the future. So I don't think that the story is um, totally determinative, I guess. Um, but that said, I do think that that older literature, you know, Coco and so on, um, had a lot of really important insights about the integration of state and capital um, that I think I'm not the only person to be picking up on those today. I think there's a lot of work that's being done about the ways in which, you know, the New Deal was sort of channeled through business um, organizations and the um, the function that that pattern of statecraft had for constraining the possibilities for um, either social democracy or socialism in the United States. Very good. Well, let me ask you a last question here. Uh, where do you go from here? Tell us about your next project, especially the so the threads that tie this book to what you're working on now. Yeah, I am working on a, a second book now. Uh, it's called The Disappearing Worker, and it sort of turns to labor and legal history. And so when I was researching this first book, I sort of began to rethink um, what is, you know, pretty essential, a central problem in the post-war um, history of the United States, and that is the unraveling of the employment relationship. So how does it come to be that today, everybody's a contractor or they work for a contractor or the company they work for is actually owned by a financial corporation. And the you know consequence being that very few people have a legally recognizable um, uh, status as an employee of the company that purportedly employs them. And of course, that's had huge consequences for class power in the United States. And usually the story of that kind of unraveling of the legally recognized employment relationship is told in a national frame. And we actually have some really great uh, writing on that. Um, one of the things that I was finding when I was doing research for this first book was that there were processes of kind of unraveling the employment relationship that were taking place in the mid-century third world in the under the auspices of, of developmental states that I had not expected to find and I began to wonder about how they might be connected actually to this late 20th century process in the United States. So the book is sort of um, looking at the ways in which U.S. multinational corporations were um, operating in the third world, a context in which they thought there was, you know, great profit to be made and great opportunity uh, for them. But the third world is a place of tremendous social and political upheaval, and they are facing a lot of political and social challenges there. And one of the things that many companies, I, I argue, are coming to recognize is that it's a liability to be the boss. It is a liability to actually employ workers. And they start to become interested in ways that you can invest in the third world without actually um, uh, technically employing anyone. And so I am trying to look at, at examples of, of these kinds of um, forms of corporate restructuring that are taking place in the third world. And then because multinational corporations are multinational, I'm interested in looking at the processes of learning and the ways that um, lessons about labor management uh, developed in the mid-century third world get transposed and adapted and redeployed to the first world um, after the 1970s. Yeah, you see the model. Uh, well, I'll just say too that Amy was here recently, funded by the National for Humanities on a, on a fellowship to do some uh, work on this book um, last, last summer. So um, more coming from that for our audience. So I'm gonna bring this to a close. Amy, thank you so much for thank sharing you. sharing your thoughts.
um, you all should pick up her book. Uh, very much worth reading. And I'm sure we'll be hearing more from Amy in the future. And come back for another Hagley History Hangout. Thanks so much, Roger. This was really fun. <laughs>